Welcome to Engage Arizona, public policy for daily life. Today we hear from Dr. Brian Arnold, academic dean and assistant professor of theology and church history at Phoenix Seminary. Dr. Arnold discusses church history and how studying it reveals practical lessons for Christian living today, including how the Holy Spirit speaks and continues to speak into our lives. Hear a bit about Dr. Arnold's journey from seminary to academia and why he is hopeful for our future. And now, here's Kathy Herod. Well, welcome everyone to Engage Arizona, the podcast for Center for Arizona Policy. Today, uh, this is Kathy Herod, and today my guest is Brian Arnold. I should say Dr. Brian Arnold, a professor at Phoenix Seminary. He's the also now newly appointed academic dean at Phoenix Seminary. So welcome, Brian. Glad to have you with us today. Thanks, Kathy. Um, let me start off with just sharing, share a little bit about um, why seminary? Um, I mean, how did you come to Christ, and, and why did seminary? Why, why is, was seminary your calling when you went to seminary? So I'll go all the way back, maybe to the beginning, and uh, say that my parents grew up in homes that were not Christian. My mom uh, was nominal Catholic, dad was so nominal something that I don't even know what it was, and uh, they moved to Marion, Ohio, where uh, they had some really pesky. Baptist neighbors who believed in sharing the gospel with a lot of people and shared the gospel with my parents, brought us to church. My parents got saved, and my mom was baptized, actually, when she was pregnant with me. So I like to say that I was grew up in a Christian home, but barely. And uh, so, so grew up uh, in the church, gave my life to Christ early, but it wasn't until my senior year of high school when I started to take my faith very seriously and uh, joined a Bible study with a bunch of friends in, in high school. And um, I, I asked the question one day, it was just about 12 or so high school boys, uh, no adult leaders or anything. One of my friends was leaving it. And I asked how many of them were reading their Bible regularly. And about half of them raised their hand. And I wasn't reading anything regularly, let alone the Bible. But I remember thinking, if I'm going to call myself a Christian, then, then knowing the Bible matters. And so I started reading. I uh, got an accountability partner, started reading through Matthew, two chapters a day. In two days, I was done with Matthew. And then it blew through the rest of the New Testament, and uh, it was like a, a fire in the soul, wanting to know the Word of God. And uh, when I went to college, I uh, got involved in Campus Crusade for Christ right away from the first week I was there, and got involved in, in Bible studies and things, and that's when I fell in love with theology. So a, uh, a Campus Crusade leader actually um, recommended Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology to me, and I was doing a paramedic internship that summer grabbed a copy of Wayne's uh, Systematic and read through it that summer, fell in love with uh, learning theology and felt called to ministry. Others saw that call as well. And uh, everyone I knew went to Southern Seminary, so graduated college and went straight to seminary. And uh, that's how I ended up on the path where I'm at now. Okay, I want to I want to talk about systematic theology, but before that, um, if I heard right, the first week that you were in college, you connected with Campus Crusade. And, That's right. and we often hear how important it is for Christian students when they hit their first year of college, how in those first two or three days or with your, the first week, they need to key into a Christian ministry. Absolutely. That is, it's critical. You could see the kids who would come in and came from a Christian background, did not get connected to a ministry, and, and the, the pull from so many other directions was overwhelming to them. And so now you um, read Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology as what, I guess a 19-year-old, something like that? Yeah, that's about right. Yep, exactly. <laughs> and then now you teach systematic theology. Do I have that right? You have that right. So tell us. So you got you went to seminary, and then you pastored for a number of years before you became a seminary professor. Correct. 
Yep, that's right. So during um, my seminary years, I worked full-time as a paramedic. That's what got me through my, my seminary days. And I was always looking for a pastorate. And when I was 29, uh, I, I got a call from a church in western Kentucky, just about 11 miles outside of Paducah, and pastored there for a couple of years. And then the call to seminary, why, why, why be a professor? So even from the time that I read Grudem Systematic, I, I thought, man, I would love to teach this. I want to spend my life studying the things of God and, and teaching them at a high level. And so I actually went to seminary hoping to get a Ph.D. and hoping to teach. And I can remember my very first week, uh, I was talking to the director of enrollment at Southern Seminary. And, you know, I kind of laid out my plan. And here I was. I was 21 when I started seminary. Uh, just another young young buck who uh, wanted to go into teaching. And he really cautioned me against it and said, you haven't even started your MDiv yet. You don't know what God's plans are. You don't know how challenging this is going to be. And uh, so I kind of even shelved it a little bit in my mind for a while. And, uh, you know, I went to seminary thinking that God was also calling me to the pastorate. So I wanted to put that on the forefront of my uh, of my mind. And I talked to Russ Moore, too, my, my first uh, week there. And he said, um, you know, the, the qualification of getting to teach at a seminary really is a desire for pastoral ministry. Here you are training pastors. If you've never done it or you don't even have a heart for it, then that's that you basically should be disqualified from it. And, uh, and, and that really resonated with me because I did want to preach and I did want to lead a congregation and I did want to do evangelism and baptize new believers and, and all the things that pastors uh, have the opportunity to do. And so... Uh, so I wanted to do that, and then, I, but I still, you know, the PhD was in the back of my mind, and I had a couple professors came to me throughout my MDiv and said, "We really think you should pursue a PhD." So, so I did, and I uh, had Michael Haken, who actually asked me to stay at Southern to do a PhD with him in patristics, which is studying the Church Fathers, and so I, I did that. I was already in my PhD program then when I took my pastorate. I was in my pastor for a couple of years. I knew I wanted to teach. Lauren, my wife, also knew that that, that passion was in my heart. And um, I almost gave up on it, actually. I had been applying to a couple different places, never heard anything back. And and finally, I told told Lauren, my wife, that I was going to go to my last Evangelical Theological Society, which is our big uh, society meeting for, for evangelical scholars. And uh, it's, it's held once a year, and that's kind of where you make the connections for jobs. And I said, I'll, I'll go one more time, see if God opens the door for anything. And uh, that was 2014, and I told her that in June. And in August, I got a call from Dr. John Mead, who's a professor of Old Testament at Phoenix Seminary, saying there's a position open. Are you interested in it? I said, absolutely. And uh, I actually interviewed that November at ETS, and uh, the rest is history. Got the job and moved to the desert. Well, and I have to point out, we often, we know people who can teach, but they can't preach, or ones that can preach, but they can't teach. And I should say, if anyone wants to hear a sermon by Brian, you should go on Whitten Avenue Bible Church's um, website, because I was privileged to hear Brian preach a few months ago at Whitten Avenue, and it was a, a very well done sermon. And if I remember right, it was a sermon when you didn't even have your notes in front of you, but um, you were preaching that day, um, you weren't teaching, you were, you were preaching it too, and so that's really something. Well, let's talk a little bit about um, your, when you talk about studying the church fathers, and I saw a quote about what drives you about, and part of it was equipping students and, and, and what we need to know about church history. Speak to that a little bit about why, why does it matter for us to know about church history, or, or what do we need to know about articulating our faith? Why is that your passion, or how is that your passion? 
Yeah, I. What, what drew me to, to church history, uh, I actually, before I went to seminary, was reading a book called Church History in Plain Language by a guy named Bruce Shelley. That I highly recommend to people who don't know anything about church history. And that's what began to spark that desire uh, in my soul for, for studying even the fathers. And, um, and history is so important to me because I think so many people in the church really think when they when they try to think of church history they think back to when their pastor was born or you know maybe they have just a, a very small understanding of what those different figures the big figures are throughout church history but they don't really have a good grasp for um the totality of history and so we, we see these questions that, that come up over and over again and, and people don't realize that really intelligent people have already answered them throughout the history of the church how, how do we handle um you know, issues uh, related to scripture. Well, the, the Princeton theologians really handled a lot of that. Uh, when we think about the issues of authority and, and the nature of, uh, of scripture as final authority, the reformers handled that in many ways. And so it, it's been really eye-opening, I think, to a lot of my students who come in, they think, oh, history is boring. I took the driest, boring history professors in high school and in college, and, uh, and they don't realize just the treasure trove that is our history, that the, the, the Holy Spirit's been moving through men and women for two millennia, and we have the opportunity to read the Bible along with them. Uh, it, it's amazing to me how cut off people are. C.S. Lewis called it chronological snobbery, when we read just people from our own time and, and, and don't realize people have been reading and interpreting things like the Bible for 2,000 years. And when we have the opportunity to sit down and study with them, it really fills out our understanding of God, of Scripture, and, and of the faith at large. That's really missing in our evangelical world today, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I'd say most people have very little grasp of church history. It, it makes me, I've been asked, you know, I've seen people in the younger generations, if you want to say the millennials, that have gone from the evangelical world into perhaps Roman Catholicism or into, moved into Reformed theology, and some of that drive for some of these young people has been a, a desire to know church history, to know more, um, to do deeper study than what they've gotten in their in, in the average evangelical church in today's world. Yeah, there's a book out even uh, recently called In Search of Ancient Roots. Uh, I think it's Kenneth Stewart who wrote it, and that's what he's chron chronicling, is, is all the, the evangelicals who are leaving evangelicalism for Anglicanism, for Orthodoxy, and for Roman Catholicism, uh, because they see the depth of history. People right now, like you said, Kathy, the, the millennials want something that, that, that's deeper, that's older, that to hold on to. Culture right now is so chaotic. Um, and, and, and when we have basically a, a church culture today that, you know, people just pop up churches here and there and everywhere uh, without actually connecting it into the deeper roots of ancient Christianity, um, millennials are feeling that, and, and they're wanting something that, that really ties them to the ages more. So I'm encouraged in that people want something with longevity, but I'm discouraged uh, in, in, in some ways as well um, that evangelicalism has not been able to offer that, even though we have a rich heritage as well. So for the, the average listener, what, what are the one or two books that at the top of your list, I think you already mentioned one, but mention again, what should someone um, read who wants to understand more about church history? Yeah, I, so I'd recommend Bruce Shelley's Church History in Plain Language, which is really good. And then there's a two-volume work by Husto Gonzalez, The Story of Christianity, which is pretty accessible, and it, it puts it kind of in a narrative type of flow. Those are really good for kind of getting the, the larger grasp of, um, 
uh, of the, the sweeping narrative of, of uh, the last 2,000 years for the church. And then I would also recommend Greg Allison's Historical Theology, which is a companion volume to Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. And if you're interested in, in how doctrine was developed, that's a really good accessible book on that. So the word evangelical gets thrown around a lot in today's culture. What What's the state of evangelicalism, or, or what does the word even mean today? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so, so the word evangelical uh, has really been defined um, in, in scholarship by a guy named David Bevington. And we have what we call the Bevington Quadrilateral, where he identifies four main ideas that, that define what an evangelical is. And that is biblicism. That is, we are, we are scripture-first people, just like the reformer said, sola scriptura, scripture is the final authority on all matters of faith and practice. And uh, crucicentrism, number two, is the idea that we uh, center our faith on Christ crucified and risen. And so you might remember hearing um, C.H. Spurgeon used to say, it didn't matter what text of the Bible he preached, he made a beeline for the cross. So keeping the cross central in all we do um, it is, is important for evangelicalism. Third is conversionism. That is, we believe everyone needs to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so you might remember, especially back 20 or 30 years ago, it was all, are you a born-again Christian? And uh, that, that was evangelical kind of language and getting at the idea of, are you converted? Have you received the second birth that Jesus talks about in John 3? And then the fourth one is activism. Uh, evangelicals have always been active in, in seeing change in society. And so you might think back to people as far back as William Wilberforce and, um, and ending the slave trade in England. Um, you know, evangelicals were, were instrumental in civil rights. And, um, and so evangelicals have always had that impulse to see the gospel played out in society as well. So those are the four main pillars. Now, what's the state of evangelicalism today? It's kind of a disaster. Again, I'd say in many ways because people don't know what it means. And so in some ways it's, it's too broad of a term. In other ways it's too constrictive of a term. Um, and, and people don't even know those kind of four pegs on, on which um, scholars have talked about what evangelicalism is. Uh, the, you know, there's even questions about whether or not the term itself is, um, if we can retrieve it, if we can, if we can hold on to it. And I, I think the answer is yes. I don't think it's so far damaged. Um, I, I do think the, the intertwining of what, what most of the culture sees as evangelicalism with uh, right-wing politics is not helpful from an evangelistic kind of perspective, that they see it so intertwined that they cannot kind of separate the faith from politics. But, sorry about that, but, but at the same time, I, I do think it's... Uh, it's a term that we can salvage, at least for now. I don't know what other term people would recommend in the meantime, but Thomas Kidd just came out with a book on this question. He's a very thoughtful American uh, historian, uh, religious historian at Baylor, and uh, I, I look forward to reading that. I, I want to hear some of his take on it as well. I want to get to the activism part point in a minute, but on the, on the cross part, I often, it often feels to me like we've lost the way of the cross, that we've lost the focus on the cross. We've lost the focus on Jesus and what Jesus' death and resurrection meant, what, what the shedding of his blood meant to, um, you know, I think of some of the old hymns that, you know, that um, his blood washed us pure. I mean, we, we just seem to not be focused on the cross like we should be. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I, I tell my students that all the time. It, 
when you look at the big movements of God in history, when, when revivals and reformation happen, people are focused again on Scripture and on Christ crucified and risen. Paul said that was his whole message. It, it is centering on, on the, those ideas, right? Uh, the, of first importance, he says in, in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus Christ crucified for sins and risen again. So I, it, it's amazing to me. I think a lot of uh, evangelicals, especially younger evangelicals, think that uh, they need to do something else to really capture people. But really what captures them is the conviction of the Holy Spirit when they're called out, uh, when their sin is, is spotlighted, and they're pointed to a Savior. And that's the way that, that God has always seemed to work in, in big ways. And now the, the attention seems to be shifted towards activism in a way that, that leaves Christocentrism behind. Yeah, well, and to just look at modern worship compared to the hymns of old and what the focus was and focus on worshiping God versus on me, and we could probably have a whole discussion on that. Let's focus on activism for a little bit. Um, the whole issue of, of church engagement, public policy, the debate over social justice in the church, what should be the level of, I mean, what, what's the balance? How, how should the church, how should pastors engage in public policy and the issues of our day? Uh, I think that's a very difficult question. Um, I, I wish I had something that was very set as an answer for that. Um, I, I think it, it matters maybe even issue to issue. Um, I, I, I think pastors need to focus primarily on preaching the gospel. That said, there are many issues in our culture which demand a response from the Bible. So uh, abortion is one of them. I, I think uh, issues of race is one of them, uh, where, where pastors would be neglectful of their duty to not tell their congregations what God's Word says about these important political type of issues. So uh, absolutely, I think the church should, should engage on, on many of those things. And we have a rich religious history in, in the United States, and, and you would hate to see that go away. And I, I do see a lot of younger pastors, for whatever reason, not wanting to engage in some of these issues, but they're starting to impinge on religious freedom. And I don't think that they've taken good stock of what will happen if we lose religious freedom in, in our society. And so I'm a little disheartened to see that as well. And so in, in that way, they do need to engage to ensure that our, our fundamental First Amendment right is protected. Now, Brian, you, you're a husband, you're a father, you're an academic dean at Phoenix Center, you're teaching classes, you're very busy. But at the same time, you've made time to be chairman of the board of Arizona Right to Life and be engaged in the pro-life movement. Um, why? I mean, what, what led you to, to step up more and take a, a leadership role in the pro-life movement in Arizona? So it wasn't long after I moved out to Arizona that I got a call from a good friend of mine, Jenny Clark, who uh, I actually didn't know her well at the time when we moved out here. But uh, she was one of the first people kind of met and befriended, and, and then the former chairman of, of Arizona Right to Life met him as well, and, and quickly the three of us formed a pretty good friendship, and um, you know, they, I knew that they were on the board, and they asked me if I'd be interested in it, I said, of course, uh, because you know, my family's always been very involved in the pro-life movement. My mom worked at a CPC growing up, and so I spent a lot of my time there watching them you know, bring uh, these young women in and counsel them and talk to them and, and give them the, the supplies that they would need to be successful mothers. And, and I, I can remember being young and, and I mean, I, you know, regardless of what we 
you know, different listeners would, would think about this. Um, we would stand out and uh, pray in front of, of abortion clinics, hold signs, things like that. And, um, you know, I, that, that's like ingrained in my mind. And so for our house growing up, that was always a central issue. Um, you know, when it came to, to politics, when it came to uh, the, the social issues of the day, abortion was always number one. So for me to have an opportunity to serve in this in our state, uh, was a great opportunity, and I did not want to pass that up. So, so parents who are, parents of young children, children still at home who are listening to this, um, hear what Brian just said. Um, we know that we're to train up our, our children in the way they should go, and Brian certainly um, was raised by a mother who was pro-life and who engaged him in the pro-life movement, and that's in here. Brian, as an adult, is leading in the pro-life movement. So that's an encouragement to those who are parents too to continue to train up our children in the way they should go and what it means. Well, let me get back a minute to um, Phoenix Seminary, and now um, congratulations on your promotion to Academic Dean. And what does Academic Dean mean? What, what does that mean for your job? So as <laughs> Academic Dean, I oversee the faculty, and so I get to kind of lead them, shepherd them, um, and uh, I get to guard the doctrinal statement in many ways, uh, myself along with the president. And that's important to me because so many seminaries have gone uh, liberal in the last several hundred years. And uh, I think it, I think it's important that, that a conservative evangelical seminary maintain its way. And, and so that's a, a critical issue for me. I also get to oversee the fun things like accreditation and assessment, <laughs> which means <laughs> making sure that we're in compliance with um, our just different accrediting bodies in the Department of Education. So how can the listener engage more at Phoenix Seminary? Do, um, someone, if they, even if they don't want to get a seminary degree, sometimes you could audit a class. What, what should someone know about if they want to take a systematic theology class? Or do I, Did I see that you also teach a contemporary moral issues class as well? What if someone wants to engage? We do. So the contemporary moral issues classes are Christian ethics class. Um, and yeah, we have the systematic theology, church history, which is the best class at Phoenix Seminary. <laughs> <laughs> I need to take that one. <laughs> So yeah, students can audit uh, these types of classes, and just to know that we have a wide range of different degrees. So we have anything from a Master of Arts in Ministry, and then students can actually um, do a concentration in, in multiple areas, to a Master of Arts in Biblical Theological Studies, which is a 48-hour degree, and that, that one's even able to be done all online, all the way up to the, to the Master of Divinity degree, which is our, uh, our bread and butter. That's really what prepares people for a lifetime of vocational ministry. We also have other degrees like the Master of Theology for those who already have an MDiv to let them specialize in biblical languages more, and a Doctor of Ministry degree. So there's a lot of those types of options, but for, for most of your listeners, I would say if they really wanted to come and, and audit a course, that's always an, an option that they could do, or um, um, you know, even even audit some online. So And the website is? ps.edu. Pretty easy. Pretty easy. Okay, yep. so uh, do you read non-theological books, uh, or what do you read for pleasure or escape or that type of thing, or, or is it just all theology books? No, it's not all theology books. I read um, a lot in uh, presidential biographies, my favorite. So right now I'm actually reading uh, Robert Caro's book on LBJ, Master of the Senate. Uh, it's about a thousand pages. It just kind of chronicles that that period of time for him. But he does a masterful job of even going back to the days of Webster and Clay and Calhoun in the Senate, and and kind of following different trends in the Senate uh, up until the the time that LBJ comes into uh, to the, his time in the Senate. So yeah, I love books like that. Um, McCulloch's Adams. Um, 
Yeah, sure. Now it's Washington. I, 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 I'm a, I'm a presidential historian buff. F favorite president then? Oh man, maybe Teddy Roosevelt. That was a surprise to me. Uh, reading some of Edmund Morse's books on on Teddy Roosevelt, you get um, a, a man of deep integrity, and he had the kind of winsome leadership that I think kind of rallied the nation. So, yeah, I like Teddy. Okay, so last question. Um, any vacation plans? What, what do you, what do you, do you, you and your family get a break and go do some fun? What, what's next? Yeah, so uh, one, one of the, the nice things about teaching is summer's off. So, um, you know, one of the, the issues about moving to Arizona for us is that we would be 24 hours away from our closest relatives. And so we, uh, this year, for the first time, we're going to hop in the van and drive all the way back to Florida and uh, meet my wife's family. They're from Kentucky, down on St. Augustine Beach, and we're going to be there for uh, about a week and then see my parents who live in Central Florida and uh, kind of hit all the family while we're there and enjoy our, our time in the hot, humid humidity <laughs> of, of Florida before we come back to the hot dryness of Arizona. Then you'll appreciate Arizona even more. Well, That's we right. we in Arizona are blessed to have you and your family here, to have you um, in a leadership role at Phoenix Seminary. Thanks, Thank you for your leadership in the pro-life movement in the theological world, and thanks for taking time with us today. May God bless you and your efforts. Well, thanks a lot, Kathy. It was a lot of fun. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Engage Arizona, public policy for daily life. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love to hear from you. Subscribe, rate, and give a review on any podcast platform you use. For more information, visit azpolicy.org.